Good morning. How are you all doing today? Great. Great. Awesome. I like the responses. Well, I want to give you two warnings up front before I start speaking. One is that today I hope to take you guys on a journey with me through some things that I've, I've been taught and just learned on my own um, as I've gone through scripture. And I've been given a warning indirectly from Pastor Joey that if I'm going to go on a journey with you through different truths, that I probably should give you a roadmap to what those things are so you don't get lost along the way. So I just want to, for up front, talk about three things that I want to hit on as we go through this journey together. One, I want to hope that we all understand and come to the same meaning on what God's sovereignty is. Because if we don't all have the same understanding of what it means for God to be sovereign, then the topic I want to talk about today, which is prayer, I think is going to be directly affected by what you view as God's sovereignty. So I want to talk about that. I also want to present a potential conflict between those two concepts of God's sovereignty and prayer and why there may be some difficulties there with those two and meshing them together. And then lastly, I hope to resolve that conflict in a way that is an encouragement and hopefully even reshapes the way maybe that you pray and talk to God. The other warning that I want to give is that I don't have specifically one main passage I'll be working through. Since this is a journey and it is more of a topical study, I'm going to be flipping to a lot of different places. So all of those scripture uh, moments where you would have to flip to the Bible really quick, this is when those all come into play, all right? So I'm going to hope that you guys can keep with me. Um, I'll give you time to flip to the different passages we'll be in so you hopefully won't get lost along the way. Let's start in prayer. God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that it's truth, and I thank you that this is not my message and that this is not my opinions and, and what I just personally have come up with and believed. And Instead, I'm giving the truth of, of what God's word is. I thank you for that, God. I thank you that um, you use even people like me that are maybe not the most gifted or incredible to just share your word because your word is truth and it does impact people, God. So I thank you for that. I thank you for this opportunity. I pray that as I preach today that um, these words would impact the people here in the same way they've impacted me um, and that it would change hearts, God. I pray all this in your name. Amen. So I, I want to start with an illustration. So growing up, when we're children, we really depend on our parents for pretty much everything, right? If I want food, if I want clothing, if I want anything at all, I go to my parents and depending on what you believe of your parents and what you think of them in their character, you may come to them in different ways in order to get things, right? So my dad, I know that he loves ice cream, all right? So anytime that I offer an opportunity to go with him and get some ice cream, I know he's going to be on board for that, right? So let's say there, as a kid, there's this party I really want to go to. My natural inclination would be, man, I'm going to take him out for ice cream, and then I'm going to tell them, hey, there's this party I really want to go to, and there's going to be ice cream at the party, and I will bring some back for you if you let me go to this party. So because I know his character and I know who he is, that's the avenue maybe that I would go at as a kid. With my mom, she loves quality time with people and with me and with others. And so maybe I would say, mom, let's spend some time together watching a movie, doing something fun, and then I'll tell her, hey, there's this party coming up. And man, this kid, I, I don't even know if he has a bunch of people coming. I think this would be a great opportunity for me to love him, to spend time with him. You know, he needs me to do this. And that would be the avenue that I'd go at in order to, to pluck at those heartstrings and hopefully come to the thing that I want, to go to this party, right? And in the same way, the way we view other people, we do the same thing with them too. Um, depending on what I want or depending on what I'm, I'm thinking I need to discuss with somebody, I'm going to talk to in a certain way depending on what I think their character is. And I think the same thing is true with God. Depending on what I think of God and depending on how I think his character is, that's going to directly influence the way that I come to him and I talk to God. And so I, I want to work through sovereignty because I think that is a huge pivotal thing when we're talking about prayer and how I talk to God. 
And specifically, I want to work through some um, truths in Jerry Bridges' book, Trusting God. How many of you have read that book before? It's an awesome book. If you haven't read it, you definitely need to. And there's three main truths that he hits on. He says that God is powerful, that God is wise, and that he's loving. And I think all of those three things have to be there in order for us to truly understand God's sovereignty and trust him. Um, So first off, we know God is powerful because we can look at creation and see that. Um, Romans 1.20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. I mean, if you look outside and you see the incredible, intricate design necessary to make what's out there, it's pretty obvious to see that God is powerful, way more powerful than I ever could be. I mean, I struggle to make something as simple as a a little Play-Doh creation, right? And he can go out there and create everything that we see in front of us. So God is powerful. Second, we know God is wise because all wisdom comes from him. So in James 1, 5, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So we know that even though some of us may have, have taste of wisdom and even partial wisdom, Every single bit of wisdom that we even have is ultimately from God. All wisdom comes from him. So not only is he all-powerful, he's all-wise, and he's also all-loving. Romans 5, 6 through 8. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This concept that God didn't just come to die for, for us people that are, are pretty good, we're pretty all right, and we're definitely worth saving. We're not. We were enemies to God that would completely not live life with him if we could. We would push him aside. And instead of us coming to him, he came to us and rescued us. That's an incredible love, so much so that he's willing to send his son to die on a cross for our sins. So we know that God is all loving, he's all powerful, and he's all wise. And here's why those three truths have to be there. So for instance, let's say God is wise and he's powerful, but he's, but he's not loving. Well, that could maybe be compared to the Greek or the Roman gods that you think of in ancient times. Um, they're pretty smart. They know what's going on in the world, and they're very powerful and can and make things happen that us people can't. But ultimately, those, those Greeks and the Romans, they didn't have a lot of trust that those gods were for them. They didn't have a lot of trust in knowing that, man, if I ask these gods for things, they're going to help me because they love me. They were just gods that kind of did whatever they wanted, and they're ultimately— we're looking out for their own, their own self-interest. And so it's important that all three things are there for that reason. Secondly, let's say God is powerful and he's loving, but he's not wise. Um, it's Christmas season, so maybe I'll use Santa as an illustration. So, I mean, he's actually got some powers, right? He can reach into a magic bag and pull out whatever thing he wants. He commands these magical reindeer, and he's loving enough, enough love to actually give presents to the whole world, right? At least if you're on the nice list. But he's not the wisest in the world because his entire group of workers is small, weak people that can, can barely do as much as, as we could probably, right? So he's not the wisest person in the world, but he's powerful and loving. And, and likewise, we don't want God to not be wise. And third, God is loving and wise, but, but what if he's not powerful? Right, that'd be similar to maybe that, that elderly man that's in your neighborhood that you just know has so many stories and so much wisdom, and like you go to him to ask him anything because he just knows so much stuff. And he just loves people and, and he's helpful, but he's maybe not the most powerful man in the world, right? There isn't a lot of things that he can, he can make happen. Um, and if, if God doesn't have all three of these things, then those are the types of pictures that we end up having of God. Um, and I think with those three things in mind, it, it makes prayer an incredible thing. So I want to work through a couple passages 
um, just to show you God's sovereignty in a tangible way that puts those three things together. Um, So for one, if you want to turn with me to Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 5. Ephesians 1, 3 through 5. I'll give you a little more time than the first couple of verses. That's my bad. Ephesians 1, 3 through 5. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. So one of the first things that I came across as I was wrestling and growing in, in God's sovereignty and prayer and how those things go together was the fact that it, it really appears scripturally that God played an incredible role in my salvation, a pivotal role in that. Um, even so much as far to say that before the foundation of the world, before anything was even formed, he had planned this in my life for me to be saved, for me to be a Christian. If you flip over to Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, um, he further stresses it. It says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others were. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loves us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. So I want to ask a question. What is a dead person really good at doing? Nothing, right? They're really good at being dead. And likewise, in this passage, when it says that I was dead in my sins, I was dead spiritually. Sometimes when we think of salvation, I think we, we think we're kind of on the ocean. We're swimming, we're doing okay, and Christ threw us a life preserver, and we grabbed that, and he pulled us in. But I think when you look at this passage, the, the imagery that it's using is so much more than that. I think I was at the bottom of the ocean, and there was nothing I could do. I was completely dead at the bottom of the ocean, could never save myself, and somehow God, being rich in love, reached in my heart and did an incredible work and pulled me out from the depths of the ocean and saved me. That's the kind of love that God had for me. That's the kind of thing he did in my salvation. And so when I'm looking at these passages and wrestling through these truths, I'm going, man, God, God is so sovereign in my salvation. He's so sovereign in it. You know, I can, I can go down many different ways and say, man, well, well, it's this person that led me to it and this person that gave this truth. But at the end of the day, I think God orchestrated all those things and ultimately had to change my heart so I'd come to him. And that's an incredible truth. As you go on further, I, I began to realize that God is incredibly sovereign, not only in my salvation, but also in my Christian walk. So if you look at Romans eight twenty-eight, if you want to flip there. Romans eight twenty-eight through 30. Pretty familiar passage. Romans eight twenty eight through 30. It says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. 
there is an incredible promise in this passage. If you look at the beginning of it, it doesn't say some things. It doesn't say partial things or most things. It says all things work together for good for those who love God. So the promise here is saying this, is that no matter what I go through in life, no matter what happens in my life, God is using all those things to what? To make me more like his son, Jesus Christ. He's committed to my sanctification. He's committed to my Christian walk. And there isn't a single thing that goes outside of that plan. So I'm looking at those two truths and going, man, so God was sovereign in my salvation. He was sovereign in my Christian walk. And then I began to look at some other passages that that shows how God is sovereign in the hearts of people. So if you look at Exodus 4.21, and I'll just read this one really quick. Exodus 4.21 says, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do all these wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Now, I I know in the beginning of of the plagues that Pharaoh was the one that it says was hardening his heart, that he was continuing saying, no, I'm not going to let these people go. And so you could say, well, I know God is the one that's intervening now and hardening his heart, but it was because he was already hardening his heart. At the end of the day, this truth still remains that God reached into the heart of a man and he hardened it and he, he guaranteed the outcome of something. And I think that's incredible that God has that power and that sovereignty and if you go on to other passages too, so in Proverbs 16:9 it says, A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Proverbs 19:21, There are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel that will stand. So at the end of the day, I, you know, I'm not going to dive into some of the deep, deep theological things that we could go through in these passages. But at the end of the day, the truth is, whether you think that, that God's more deterministic in his sovereignty, or if you think that God is, is more loose than that and more reactionary, whatever it is that you believe— on that spectrum, the truth remains that God can do whatever he wants and whatever he has willed and planned is going to happen. There's nothing that I can do to upset that. There's nothing I can do to change that. It's, it's set. Um, and there's a huge encouragement in knowing that and knowing that God is sovereign in that way. For one, I don't have to worry about praying right or gaining extra favor in order for God to answer my prayers. So Matthew 6, 7, if you want to turn there, Matthew 6, 7, I'm looking out to see which one of you guys are the fastest. Matthew 6, 7. It says, And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Um, So when I read this verse, I I think probably immediately of the prophets of Baal with Elijah. Um, So he's challenged these prophets and these prophets spend hours and hours and hours trying to sacrifice to their God. And they'll cut themselves and they scream and they do all these things to just get their God's attention. So that God will just, will just give them what they're asking and, and, and soak up the sacrifice and prove that he's real. And Elijah comes up and what does he do? I mean, he simply praises God and asks God to receive the sacrifice and God completely consumes it. And so likewise, not like the pagans do, we don't have to come to God and say the perfect prayer or say it in the perfect way or anything like that. We're accepted by God because of who he is. It's not because of how amazing I am or how well I pray. And I think that's encouraging, that God's will is always going to happen regardless of whether I prayed it right or not. Um, secondly, I can't selfishly ruin my life or other people's lives by the things that I pray about. So James 4.3 I'll read this one really quick. It says, You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. 
So again, it, it's Christmas time, so let's use that illustration again. As a kid, and I, I think this is classic for even some of you that have children, and you ask them to pray, and they pray, God, I just would really love to have that model NASCAR, or I would really love to have that video game, or I'd really love to have whatever it is that you're, that you're wanting, right? A kid will pray that saying, man, God, I, I want that thing. And, and I think it's, it's a good thing that God doesn't always answer that, because sometimes the things that we want are actually not good, right? Um, Likewise, I think, I think sometimes maybe we even have ill intentions when we pray without even realizing it. Um, for instance, maybe somebody really hurt me or somebody really disappointed me. And I'm like, God, man, I would just really love to see that person get it. You know, if you have to, if you have to make their life a little harder right now or whatever it is possible to make them understand, um, I'd love you to do that. Or, or even, let's take a really practical example because I've heard this on both sides when it comes to the president. I mean, I've, I've heard, whether, whether it was Biden or Trump or whoever it is, sometimes people will even say, man, if, if God just took this person out, I think it'd be so helpful for the nation, for the country. But I'm thankful that God doesn't answer our prayers like that, right? Because I could mess up so many things if, if I was the one in control of how things happened. I'm thankful that God's plan will always happen regardless of how I pray and what I ask for. And then secondly, and I think the most important thing that we can be thankful for is that this means that God will always fulfill his promises. If you look at Matthew 6, 9 and 13, 9 through 13, this is the Lord's Prayer. We can turn there together. Matthew 6, 9 through 13. I think this prayer is an awesome example of, of things that we know that we can pray for because God has promised that he's going to provide them. He's promised he's going to answer them. Matthew 6, 9 through 13. It says, in this manner, therefore pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So again, this prayer, Jesus is asking for things that God has already promised will happen. Um, I won't have you flip to all these different passages, but these correlate with the Matthew passages we just read. Um, Matthew 6.33 says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. So God asks that we, we pray for our daily bread, that we pray for God to provide for us. And the Bible promises that if we seek his kingdom, if we seek him, that he will always give us those things. That there's no need to worry, there's no need to fear, that I can trust that God is going to provide in the ways that he's promised he's going to provide. First um, John 1 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Again, when I ask God to forgive me, I know he'll forgive me because he's promised that he will and he can cleanse me from all unrighteousness. First Corinthians ten thirteen. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. In other words, when we ask for God to not lead us into temptation, he's also promised that, that there is nothing that he's going to put in our life that is too difficult, that is too hard, that he hasn't already given us the grace possible to overcome that temptation. Those are incredible promises that we can cling to and we can pray knowing that God's going to answer them. Now, I think the conflict now, so we're going to work into the conflict of the, of the issue, is those truths are super encouraging when life is all dandy and great. When life is going well, we love these truths. But what about when life is harder? When we go through different trials or turmoils and we're struggling to see God's goodness and God's love in those things. Um, for, for example, maybe we have a loved one that we really care about and they're, they're in the hospital and they're struggling and we don't even know if they're going to make it. 
and our, and our natural, at least for me, as I worked through these passages early on in my Christian growth, I went, man, if God's in control and he's going to do what he's going to do anyways, then if, if I pray for God to save this person and he's already planned that they're not going to be saved, then why do I pray that? I mean, why would I spend time praying that? Because God's just going to do what he's going to do anyways. Um, maybe it's a person that you really care about and you have severed ties with them and you would do anything you could to restore that relationship and to have it back to the way it was. And no matter how much you pray and no matter how much you love that person and pour into them, it seems like it's never fixed and it's never resolved. And it'd be easy for me if I only looked at God's sovereignty to go, man, well, well, it doesn't really matter how I pray about this because God's already determined what's best. God's already determined how this relationship is going to be. And so there's no, there's no need to pray and ask God to fix this relationship because he's just going to do what he's going to do. Um, maybe you struggle with, with chronic pain or illness or something like that, and you're like, God, please just take away this burden from me. Just take away this struggle from me. But in reality, if I only look at God's sovereignty, I go, man, well, he's already decided what's best for me, and what's best for me is to be ill and sick and, and in this chronic pain. Um, so why would I pray and ask God to change that? I think these are the things that I struggled with putting together. If, if God is sovereign and in control and he's going to do what he's going to do, then is there really a purpose in praying and asking God to change things? Isn't it better for me to just pray as a spiritual exercise or for me to just pray as a way to, to fix my mind and my heart to put it back on God? But in reality, I, I don't think that's the right view. I think if I only view God's sovereignty as him just already deciding what he's going to do and it's irrelevant what I pray for, he's not going to change things, I, I think I've missed some key passages. And so what I hope to do now is to resolve those two conflicts um, and go through some specific instances of people that actually prayed um, in a way where they asked for specific things and God answered differently in different ways. Um, but I think it's helpful for us to see that we can pray for specific things. So if you want to go to Luke 22, verses 41 through 44, Luke 22, 41 through 44. I'm going to use probably the greatest example that I can use, and, and that's Jesus. And it says, And when he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. So considering what we already talked about, here, here's the struggle that I have with it. If God is sovereign and he's already going to do what he's going to do, and if there's anyone that knows what he's going to do, it's going to be Jesus, right? Jesus would have all the knowledge in the world and know exactly why he came to earth. I mean, his, his whole purpose in coming to earth was to come to die for mankind. So why in the world is he right now asking God, would you please remove this cup from me? I know this is the thing that I literally came for. It's the purpose of why I'm here, but I'm asking that if it be your will that you'd remove this cup from me. That seems to kind of counter, counterproduct themselves, right? They don't seem to go together right. Um, but I think there is a purpose and there is a reason, and I'm going to work through the other two passages first before we, we nail on that reason. So if you want to go to 1 Samuel 1, 10 through 16, uh, this is the story of Hannah. 1 Samuel 1, 10 through 16. Um, and I'm just going to give a little context before we read through it as well. Um, Hannah, in this passage, is praying and asking God to give her a child. And, and in that time period, when you were barren, when you didn't have children, 
it was actually viewed as, as a curse or, or that God wasn't showing favor to you because in order to fulfill the Abrahamic promise of multiplying and spreading out the nation and, and being like grains of sand on the seashore, um, you're supposed to have children. And so if you weren't having children um, as, a, as an indirect side effect, you're, you're actually not fulfilling the Abrahamic promise. And so it was a huge discouragement as a woman if you weren't having that. And it honestly seemed as if it was God's will if it wasn't having that because it was just a curse or it was just um, a thing that God had decided for you because of sin or something else in your life. So that's some of the context of what Hannah is maybe wrestling through and struggling with. And the passage says this. It says, And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. And then she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall come upon his head. So again, she's just pouring out herself to God and saying, God, please give me a son. I'll even dedicate him to the service if you'll do that. And it happened as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli watched her mouth. Now Hannah spoke in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought that she was drunk. So Eli said to her, how long will you be drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered and said, no, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief, I have spoken until now. So not only is Hannah asking for something that seems to be against the will of God or something that seems to just be a natural part of her life at that moment, she's asking for something in a way that is so passionate and, and so heartfelt that they actually think that she's drunk in the temple because she's just pouring herself out to God. So not only is she allowed to ask for something that is specific, but she's asking for something in a way that's passionate and real, almost if she's expecting God to hear and answer her in that way. And 1 Samuel 1, 17 and 18, further on, says, Then Eli answered her and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition, which you have asked of him. And she said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went away her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. So here's what's really interesting is that Hannah had been depriving herself of food, of water, um, just completely despondent and, and really struggling. But after she pours her out to God in this way, her, her character change is incredible. She moves on with life and she begins eating again and going back to life is normal. And so two things are going on. Why can Hannah pray that way? And then two, why after praying that way is she just okay and able to go on? And I'm not going to say it yet because again, I want to hit one more passage, but I'm, I'm going to nail on that truth in a second. So let's flip to one more passage, um, 2 Samuel chapter 12, starting in verse 15. 2 Samuel 12, starting in verse 15, and we'll read through 23, just kind of break down this passage. Um, context for this one as well, so, so this is about King David, and this is after his sin with Bathsheba, and he's being punished according to Nahum, and that his child is going to die. And the reason that the child is going to die is because of that sin. And so for context for this, it, it seems that God has already determined something. God has said that he's going to kill this child, that it's going to happen. And yet, as we see later on, that, that David prays and asks for the child to be saved. So again, verse 15, it says, And the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. And David therefore pleaded with God for the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. So the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. So similar to Hannah, David is also depriving himself of food, of water, and, and just pouring himself out to God, saying, God, please save my child, even though he knows that it seems like it's God's plan that his, his child doesn't make it. 
Going on, it says, Then on the seventh day, it came to pass that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him and would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do some harm. And when David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore, David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. So the natural inclination of the servants is to say, man, if, if David was so depressed and upset about his child beforehand, then man, if we tell him that the child is dead now, there is no way he's going to be able to handle this. He's completely going to break down and, and it's going to be bad. It's going to be really bad. But as we say, see later, David actually has a different response. Starting in verse 20, so David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then he went to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. And then his servant said to him, What is this that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you rose and ate food. Then his servant said to him—oh, I'm sorry. And he said, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him— but he shall not return to me. So in other words, David, instead of being more despondent and depressed about his child being killed, he's actually now encouraged that it's over, saying, I, I know God has a plan, and I know I trust him, and he's good, and I'll see my child one day. And there's no sense in me being depressed and not eating or anything like that, because at this point, God's answered the way he's going to answer. So there's some common threads that go through all of these passages. And I think it's this. It's that Jesus, Hannah, and David, all of them, could pray for things specifically because for one, they knew the heart of God. They knew who he was and that he loved them. And, and they knew that God would answer in a way out of love and, and care for them. Um, in other words, God is not this God that is just planned his way and he's cold. And, and when I come to him, he's going to check his sheet and go, man, I've, I've already planned it this way, so I'm really sorry, but I'm not going to answer it the way that you're hoping. I don't think that's got how God works. God is a loving father that cared for these people. And even though some of them weren't answered in the ways that they were hoping, I, I think that the, the concept still remains is that God wants to answer those prayers. And he wants to give them the things that they're asking for. He just may not always a- answer in the way that we want. And I think that's best displayed in the, in the reading scripture that we did today. So if you want to turn to Matthew 7, 7 through 11. This is maybe the, the main truth that I want to hit home on today. Matthew 7, 7 through 11. Matthew 7, 7 through 11. It says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good things to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him. So in other words, what Jesus is doing is he's, he's using an illustration that we probably all understand. You know, I talked earlier that about how my parents love me and there's different avenues that I go at it trying to, to get them to give me the thing that I want. But at the end of the day, I know this. I know that my dad and my mom deeply love me. And I know that their heart is this. When I come to them and I ask them for something, they want to give it to me. I really think they want to. Now, they might not always because sometimes I ask for stupid things that are harmful and dumb. 
but their heart, their immediate heart is, I want to give him those things. I want to answer him in that way. Um, personal illustration. So when I was two years old, I really liked dog food. I would crawl over to the dish and I would just stuff my mouth full of dog food and I loved it. I thought it was great. Now, as you can tell, that's not the greatest idea in the world and my parents loved me enough to let me know that. So as I would crawl over to the dish, they would slap my hand and they would slap my hand and they would slap my hand and this went on for quite a while before I finally looked at them and I looked at my hand and I decided I didn't want any more pain. In that moment, do I feel like my mom and dad love me? No, I don't, because I think dog food is incredible, and they won't let me have it, right? <laughs> but in reality, the truth is, is that I thought I knew something that I didn't know. I thought dog food was great, and it's not. And my parents love me enough to know that, enough to even have me maybe be angry at them in order to protect me from something that wasn't good. And in the same way, I, I think it is with God, is that there are times that we are struggling, and we are hurting, and we're going through things that we just wish God would answer in a certain way. And in our little narrow view of reality, we think, man, God, this is the answer. This is what I need. But because he loves us and he's all-knowing and all-powerful and he knows what's best for us, there's going to be times he says no. And there's going to be times he says wait and sometimes he'll say yes. But at the end of the day, I know his heart is this, is that no matter what I ask him and no matter what I pour out to him, his heart is he wants to give me those things. So maybe, maybe some personal um, just examples of, of exact ways that I've struggled with this. Um, so in the past, when I went to college, I went into college single. And, and I went, man, this is my chance. I've, I've been homeschooled. There was literally only two, three girls in the youth group. This is my time to shine. I'm going to come to college, and I'm going to find the one, right? But as I found out pretty quickly is, is that it wasn't going to be as easy as I thought. And the more that I actually pursued those things, it just seemed like God always said no. That God always shut it down. And I'm still single, and I'm not depressed, and I'm not in a horrible state, so just let you guys know that. But it was discouraging in college because I went, man, if, if God's giving me this huge desire to, to have a family and, and to be a dad and a, and, a, and a husband and all these things, why in the world would he keep seemingly giving me these opportunities and then they just fall through the cracks every time? And he just says no every time. And, and my prayers would be something like this before I wrestled through these things. It'd be, God, just help me be content. Just help me be okay because this is what you've planned for me. I'm going to be single the rest of my life. That's okay. That's what you want, and I just need to be okay with it. Um, and I think that's a cold way to pray for that. Um, a second thing is, is I had a lot of unsafe friends back at home. So I, I worked at a Burger King, and uh, I was homeschooled, like I said. So when I came into Burger King, it was huge culture shock for me. Um, I didn't even know that an unsafe person could maybe be nice or could do kind things. I just, I didn't know anything. So I, I come into it, and... Um, very quickly, I realized that, man, these people are, are just like me, except I've been given grace, and I've been given Jesus Christ, and, and they don't have that. And they're trying to figure out life without those things, and they're trying to figure out what truth is, and they're just trying to make it. And they have no idea. They don't have Christ like I do. I can't imagine living life without Christ like they do. And so I, I began to develop a heart for these people, and began doing game nights where I'd invite them over and have maybe 10 to 15 of these unsaved coworkers come in and just playing games and developing relationships and conversations. And I began to have a real heart for them and to just view these people as real true friends that I wanted to see Christ. And I remember a couple summers ago, um, there was one guy that I'd specifically been really talking to and hoping that he'd come to Christ. And I felt like our conversations were going well. I felt like we were getting closer and closer to the truth and that maybe he would accept Christ. And then he called me out of the blue and I had this conversation with him that felt like every single thing 
that I had talked to him about was just completely wiped away. And I felt like, man, God, why, why would you do this? I remember just being angry with him, with God, and, and sitting out on a patio at, at someone's house that wasn't even mine because I was part of an internship, just saying, God, why would you let me love people and, and care about these people so deeply and then you just never save them? I mean, is it your plan to just never see this person saved? And if that's the case, why are you letting me go through all this pain and heartache? Why are you letting me go through all of this when, when your plan is just to do what you're going to do? And I think those are horrible ways to view it. I think if I look at the truths that are presented in front of me now, I think it changes the way that I pray. And so this is the way that I think I pray instead. If, if it's singleness, whatever you're struggling with, maybe it's singleness, um, I don't pray, God, just help me be content with whatever it is. I think that's good. I think it's helpful, and I think I should have that attitude. But I can pray specifically. I can pray, God, I would love to have a wife. I would love to have a family. I would love to have those things. And here's what I know because of God's heart. It's not him just looking at a list again and saying, ah, my plan is not for you to have a wife, so sorry, dude. Instead, it's this. It's, Hudson, I know what you're going through. I know what you're struggling with, and I love you. And I plan what's best for you. And even though in this moment, maybe it stinks and it's not what you want, I do want to answer that prayer. I do. And it may not be in the way that you think, and it may not be in the way that you think what's best, but I'm going to answer that prayer. My heart is to want to give you that thing. When it comes to the unsafe friends, I know that God isn't looking at a list and just going, well, sorry, Hudson, I've already decided what I'm going to do. Instead, I think it's more like this. It's Hudson. I, I love what you're doing. I love the heart that you have for these people. And I want to answer your prayers. These people that you're praying for and asking to be saved, I, I want to save them. But in the grand scheme of things, there may be things that you don't understand and that I've deemed as best. And, I, and maybe that's not having that person be saved. And so there's, there's a catch-22 here. There's two things that have to happen. One I have to be so secure in my relationship with God and trusting him that I'm okay with however he answers prayer. I have to be at that state so that if God says, hey, this one guy that you love a lot isn't gonna get saved because it's part of my plan, there has to be a point where I go, God, I trust you and I know you love me and you know what's best. And I'm, I'm gonna hold to that. But at the same time, I can't miss the fact that God loves me and wants to answer that prayer. When I have those two things together, I think it significantly transforms my prayer life. So I want to make this hit home for you guys. I want to ask you personally in your prayer life, for one, does your prayer life even exist? And if it doesn't, I would say, why in the world are you wasting an incredible opportunity with a relationship of, of the God of the universe who loves you like a father? He's not a cold, distant God. This is a God that specifically knows what's going on in your life and cares for you. I mean, just looking at Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your care upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. Why would you waste that relationship? So if your life isn't full of prayer, you should be praying. <laughs> Don't waste that relationship. And then maybe you do have a prayer life, and, and you, you are consistent and have a routine in prayer, but it's cold. It's more distant, and it's more a spiritual exercise and just something I do, and I'm going to ask for the things that God's already promised because he doesn't actually respond or, or react to me in, in a, a real personal way. I'd say, man, bring some life to your prayer. I think you can pray for specific things and ask God to answer in very specific ways, not because he'll always answer it exactly the way you want, but because he wants to answer those things. I think sometimes within God's will, is us asking for a specific thing and him answering that specific way. And so I don't want to waste that opportunity either and not view God as a loving father when that's definitely a part of prayer. 
So I, I want to take a second. This isn't an invitation, but if you all could close your head or close your eyes and bow your heads. Um, this is just a moment for you to, to talk between you and God. Um, for one, maybe, maybe you aren't saved and maybe you aren't a Christian and, and you don't know what it's like to have this relationship with Christ. If I could encourage you to talk to me or, or Pastor Joey or any of the people here, I'm, I'm sure they'd love to share that with you. Um, we'd love to see you come to Christ and have this relationship, but for right now, if you're a born-again believer and you just feel like your life isn't full of prayer, that you just don't spend time in prayer at all, I, I want you to take a moment and just ask God to forgive you and say, God, I, I would love to take advantage of the relationship that you've given me. I'm, I'm sorry for not seeing that as worth what it is. The relationship we have with Christ is incredible and we shouldn't waste that. And then maybe you are in prayer and you are consistent in it, but it is more cold and it is more focused on just a spiritual routine or exercise. If that's you, maybe ask God that, that he'd bring life to your prayer, that, you'd help, help, that he would help you to remember the relationship you have with him and know that he loves you deeply and he wants to answer prayer. So I just want to take a, a few moments of silence and, and just pray towards that way. God, I thank you so much for these passages. I thank you so much for how you've used them in my life and, and hopefully in the lives of people here. And God, it's just so easy to be discouraged by things around us and to think that you don't actually love us and care maybe sometimes or, or that you're a cold distant God, but in reality, you are a loving father and you've proven that on the cross. If you were loving enough to send your son to die for us, how, how much more can we trust in, in the everyday things of life, God? So I just pray that you'd give us a heart for prayer, that you would not let us waste that relationship, um, that we would see you as a loving father and just pour ourselves out to you. Not because you're going to answer exactly how we want, God, but, but even better than that, because you're going to answer what's best for us, God. I thank you for that love. I thank you for that care for us. I thank you that you're committed to us, even though we're sinners that fail over and over again, God. Your love is incredible. We don't deserve it. And I thank you so much for it. God, I thank you again for this time, and I just pray that you would, you would help it to be an encouragement and um, a blessing to those here. I pray all this in your name. Amen.